All right, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. If you look at it there, in the copy of God's Word in front of you, you can see that it starts out in verse 1. It says, Joshua, the son of Nun, and we haven't gone over this joke, you probably already know of it, just in case you don't. Anybody ask you who's the only person in the Bible who has no parents? The answer is Joshua, because he's Joshua, the son of Nun. All right, there you go. So if you, I know most of you knew that already, but that's one you need in your back pocket just in case you ever, you ever need to go with that. So Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim. I know that that word in the Bible can turn everybody into a ninth grade boy. Sorry, ninth grade boys. Uh, but the proper pronunciation, the, the I is long. It carries a long kind of E sound usually in Hebrew, so it's Shittim. Um, so there you go. I, I know it's the elephant in the room, and you can just go past it and not acknowledge it, but there it is. So uh, I told you the book of Joshua's hard. That's all I know. What to, to, well, there's a lot of things going on in the book of Joshua, but we're going to just take them head on. So Joshua, the son of Nun, who was in this place called Shittim, had spies and said, go view the land, especially Jericho. And then you go to the very end of chapter 2, and you see there in verse 23, then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. So the way that the author, through God's direction, has set up chapter 2 is you have a verse at the beginning that introduces the situation. You have a verse at the end that closes the situation. The key is what comes in between. First off, look at the uh, map that's up on the screen just for a second. I know these are always a little bit difficult to see, but uh, I'll kind of use the pointer for this right side. So a couple of things going on here. Up here in the right, upper right hand, if you see that, that little uh, circle, if that circle was nudged a little bit to the right, I'm not sure what happened on my PowerPoint slide, but if that circle was taken a little bit to the right, to the east side of the Jordan River, you would have where they're currently located at Shatim. Jericho is right here, and so they were going to cross over the Jordan River right here, so the spies would have gone into this area in the land. Now you say, well, what's going on down here in the, uh, in the bottom left, if you're looking at this one, in the bottom left? Well, when you see two spies show up in the Bible, the first place that you see two spies show up in the Bible is not Joshua chapter 2. The first place you see two spies show up in the Bible is Numbers chapter 13, and it's a story that's repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. The people were preparing to go toward the promised land. They had passed through the Red Sea in Egypt. Egypt is off your screen down here to the, to the bottom left. They had passed through the Red Sea. God had brought them out of Egypt. And they were at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they were preparing to go in. And so Moses sent spies into the promised land. And they get in there. And what happens? They see the giants. They see everything that's going on. And they say, we can never take the promised land. But how many of them said they could take the promised land? Only two, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can do this. We need to do this. But the other ten scared the people so much that they wouldn't go into the promised land. So they turned around and they went the other way. And that's the reason they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they come back again preparing to go into the promised land. And so how many does Joshua send? He sends two. No doubt to parallel him and Caleb 
and the time that they went in and they said, we can go by faith, we can take this land. So down here in the bottom left, they had tried to enter the promised land from the south. It didn't work, so they had to take a big roundabout direction, and now they're up here on the northeast side of the Dead Sea getting ready to move west, and we're going to get into that next week and the week following. So that's the story you have going on. Now go back to verse 1 again. Go back to verse 1. There in verse 1, after the death of Moses, and Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. One of the questions we have to ask this morning is, why is Joshua chapter 2 there in the story? You could read from chapter 1 to chapter 3 without any sort of a break, and the story works just fine. Why do we get chapter 2? Well, one of the references in chapter 2 has to be these two spies connecting back to Joshua and Caleb. That's one of the reasons. But the primary reason that you get Joshua chapter 2 in your Bible is that God is showing his people that his plans are often very surprising, that this journey into the promised land is not always going to work the way that they should expect it or the way that they think it's going to work. It's not going to be an easy progress going forward, that God has some things in the plans that are going to be shocking, that are going to be surprising to his people. And the first one is right here when they run in to Rahab, that you have this book that is full of all of these good things that happen, but it's also a book that's full of a lot of death and destruction. Look again at some verses that show up in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter uh, one or 2, verse 9, it says, Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that God is sending the people in the, into the land to drive out the people that are currently living there. You say, that sounds really harsh. Well, we're going to talk about that in weeks to come. How do you make sense of that idea? Verse 10, Rahab says, We have heard of Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. That word destruction is a key word in the book of Joshua. Verse 13, Rahab is begging that they would deliver their lives from death. Here's the idea. So the people of God are getting ready to go into the promised land. They're going in there to drive out the people that are currently there. And it's going to involve a lot of destruction. It's going to involve a lot of death. And Rahab knows that this is coming. And the way the story seemingly should work is that Rahab and her people should be part of those that experience that death and destruction. But what you find is that the God who saves is unbelievably, shockingly, surprisingly merciful. And where this becomes so important is because people have these images these caricatures of God in their mind, who they think God to be, who they think God is like, what they think God does. And it would be very simple to say, yeah, God's going to go in and he's going to destroy all these people. But what you find from the very beginning, and the reason chapter 2 is so important, is the God who saves, the God who is Lord over all the earth, is full of greater mercy than we would ever be able to imagine. What you find here is Rahab is the ultimate outsider. And God is most merciful to those who are on the outside, that he shows his mercy to the people that we would least likely think that he was going to show mercy to. Look back in verse 1 again, when you get this introduction to to Rahab. 
It says they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, most likely, most likely, Rahab had, for lack of a better word, some sort of brothel working out of uh, the house there on the wall. Rahab also, you have to understand in verse 13, it says, her plea is that you would save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters. Who is not mentioned in verse 13? Nothing about a husband and nothing about a kid. So she is a woman in the ancient world who is cut off from any sort of support from a husband, and she has no heritage following her with kids. So not only is she a prostitute, not only does she run a brothel in this city. When you think of a city, and this is important for going forward, when you think of Jericho as a city, it's more of a military compound. There would not have been a lot of civilians living in Jericho. Um, It would mainly have been a military city, military outpost. And so Rahab is there as a prostitute running this brothel. She has no husband. She has no kids. And it says in verse 15, her house was built into the city wall. You can't get much further of an outsider than the fact that your house is built into the city wall. So what scripture is telling us is Rahab is the ultimate outsider. If you wanted safety, where did you live in the city? You lived as close to the middle as you could get because you were safe there. Instead, here's Rahab. She's on the outside. This is a pattern that you see throughout Scripture. Go to the next slide. Let's look at this pattern that you see in Scripture. So you have Rahab, who we've already talked about. She's a complete outsider. But did you know what? Rahab shows up in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. She shows up as an insider at that point. She's involved in this lineage of Jesus. She becomes the mother of Boaz. Ruth, when you read the book of Ruth and you study that book, you find out that Ruth is a complete outsider to the people of God. She is someone who's not a part of the Israelites, and yet she marries Boaz. Bathsheba, uh, the, the wife of Uriah, who David ultimately comes and has an affair with and has a child, and that child becomes Solomon and, and continues on the lineage that would lead to Jesus. The woman at the well in John 4, she's not in a great place when Jesus meets her there in John chapter 4. Luke 7, you have the story of the woman who most likely um, is, is in a, a prostitute or has a bad reputation in the community there in Luke chapter 7, she comes and anoints Jesus' feet. That list doesn't even mention John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery. That story doesn't show up in all the early manuscripts, but it's another story where Jesus comes to this woman who's caught in a bad situation and shows her mercy. The God who saves, the God of the Bible, is shockingly merciful to outsiders. He loves the people that the world loves the least. He goes after and pursues with his love those who the world most quickly pushes to the side, discounts, the down, the out, the lost, the outsiders. He's shockingly merciful. The story of the Bible does not go from a promise of destruction in Joshua 1 to a carrying out of destruction in Joshua 2. You get this story of Rahab that's stuck right into the middle. But he's not only merciful to the outsiders, he's also merciful to the insiders, so to speak. This idea of the spies who go in there. We're not going to look at it in, in detail, but in this story, these Israelite spies who Joshua probably sent out his best men they come across looking like bumbling goofballs. 
like they are not the most impressive spies. First, you have to ask yourself, and, and you don't want to insinuate or go too far on this, but, but the first thing you have to ask is, why did they stay at Rahab's house? Maybe it was the only place possible, uh, but they don't look good early in the story. Uh, you catch them later in the story, and they're hanging from a rope out this window, trying to negotiate with Rahab as they're hanging from the rope. Then they go back to Joshua, and in the end of Joshua, if you look in those final verses, they repeat back to Joshua exactly what Rahab had told him. So they come to Joshua, and Joshua says, hey guys, how did that spying go? Uh, well, we visited a prostitute, and we hung from a rope outside a window trying to escape, and we ran away for three days hiding, and guess what? God's going to take care of us. Who told you that? Uh, the, the lady we stayed with at the beginning. They just, they're not particularly impressive. But you know, this is another thing you see in Scripture. Deuteronomy 7. Look at these verses that come out of Deuteronomy 7. When God is calling his people out, he says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The ultimate insider comment in Deuteronomy 7. Then look what comes next after this. The, or the description. Go to that next slide if you could. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for all, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And look at how it continues. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then you get a very key word that shows up at the end. Know therefore that the Lord your God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That word steadfast love there is one word in the Hebrew and it's a word that's often translated mercy. And we're going to see that word come back again. What you find that is God is merciful to the outsiders but he's also merciful to the insiders. He didn't choose the Israelites because they were the most impressive. He didn't choose the Israelites because they were great spies. Apparently, they were terrible spies. He didn't choose them because they were great warriors. God's work among his people is not dependent on the ability of the people that he chooses, the people that he works through. It's because of his mercy. And here's the other thing I want you to know, and this shows up on your notes. If you didn't know, on the back of our bulletin, we try to print some sermon notes that might be of help for you. And so if you're new with us and that would be of interest to you, you can look at that. But God is merciful to the outsiders. He's merciful to the insiders, but he's merciful in a way that doesn't remove any of his other attributes. When we talk about God being merciful, we're talking about this in a way that is integrated, that, is, that God is perfect, that he is completely unified in his character. And so he is completely merciful, but he's also completely just. He's completely loving, but Scripture can also talk about God's wrath. He is completely good, and yet at the same time, he is judge. And so when we talk about God, where we get in trouble, and where images of God get portrayed that are not accurate with Scripture, is when people tag on to one of his attributes, and that causes them to downplay or set aside another of his attributes. God is perfect in all his ways. This is not true of us. Oftentimes, when we exhibit mercy, what it really comes across as is weakness on our part. When God shows mercy, it's perfect strength. If I try to display anger or wrath, very rarely 
is it coupled with perfect love? Usually it just means I lost my temper and was completely out of control in the moment. When scripture talks about God being just or talks about God's wrath, it's never separated from his perfect love and patience and kindness. And so anytime you are learning about God, remember that you are learning about the one who is perfectly unified in all ways. And so he's able to be merciful and he's also to be powerful and just at the same time. How do we understand the idea of mercy? Well, you may have a lot of different definitions, but here's the way that I understand mercy, and I've kind of laid it out on your, on your notes in this way. It's a little bit of a cheesy phrase because it rhymes, but it, but it really helps. Mercy forgives, grace gives. Mercy forgives. So when we think about God's mercy, we're thinking about an opening up of an opportunity. He's making a way for something to happen. But mercy is not passive. This is the most important element to pick up on here. God's mercy, his steadfast love, always happens in an active way in relationship with other people. Mercy is not permissiveness. Mercy is not saying do whatever you want and let life go on. Mercy forgives and makes a way. Grace gives. Mercy makes the way. Grace brings what we need in the moment. Mercy doesn't say, hey, I'll forgive you. Now get your life together. (laughs) The way God works, he says, I am perfectly merciful and will forgive you, and then I will provide everything that you need. So a couple of weeks ago, when we were, I guess this was back, maybe a little further than that even, a couple of months ago, when we were having some pretty serious rain around here, I noticed that our gutters on the front of our house weren't working particularly well, and water was spilling over like, like crazy. And you have to know that I can barely fix a glass of water. Uh, much less anything around the house. So something goes around, wrong around the house, nine times out of ten, Amanda's the one that, that fixes it. But I help. I hold the tools and do all that good work. So, uh, but I knew something was wrong in, in our gutter. So I climbed up there on the ladder, and I looked down, and there's this round green and brown blob. And I'm like, what, what is that? It's blocking the downspout. It was a tennis ball that one of our kids had thrown up there and it had lodged in the downspout and I have no idea how long that tennis ball was there. But it was building up, building up, building up with all this junk around it and it had plugged the downspout. And so our kids were down there looking in the downspout and I was like, guys, you better move to the side. Uh, so I lift that tennis ball and the water just shoots down. I almost spent all this money fixing our guttering system, trying to repair it, and the only problem is this tennis ball had plugged the downspout. I had mercy on the guttering system and removed that ball and everything flowed just like it was supposed to do. Mercy makes a way. Mercy removes something or forgives or opens a door so that then we're able to experience the fullness of of God's work. That when he shows his mercy to us, he's showing his compassion, he's showing his kindness, he's showing his love, always in the context of relationship. God is a God who is perfectly merciful. What does that tell us about ourselves This morning in your notes, if you look at the four main points in the back of your bulletin, we're using four questions. What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about myself? What does it tell me about my relationship with God? And then how do I respond? If you don't have a plan for when you normally read the Bible, how you make sense of Scripture, those four questions you can use any time you study the Bible. If you open the Bible to read it and you say, you know what, I would read the Bible a lot more, but I just have no clue what I do when I start reading 
Use those four questions when you read scripture. What do these verses tell me about God? What do they tell me about humanity, about myself? What do they tell me about my relationship with God? And then what do I do as as a result? So what do we learn from from Joshua 2? We learn that God is shockingly merciful, especially to outsiders. What does that tell us about myself? I need mercy. I'm desperately in need of God's mercy. Here's a danger that we run into. If we're not careful, we read ourselves into Scripture as the hero character. Can I tell you that in this story, you and I are not Joshua? Jesus is Joshua. We are not Joshua. You know who we are? We are Rahab. We are Rahab in the story. And, and what happens when Joshua gets turned into a leadership textbook is you become Joshua. You are not Joshua. We are Rahab. We are the ones who are on the outside desperately in need of God's mercy. We don't come bringing anything of our own merit that says, hey God, pick me, love me, show me kindness. No, no, God makes a way, he forgives and then he brings his grace. Be so careful when you read scripture that you don't read yourself in as the hero. We always think so highly of ourselves and so lowly of everyone else that, or, or we, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and we don't give that to other people. We come on a level playing field because every one of us is in need of mercy. Now what do we learn about our relationship between God and his people? There are two things that stand out uh, from this chapter. The first is the fear of God, and the second is the faith that is needed for salvation. So fear and faith are the two things we learn about the relationship between God and his people. We are to fear God, his judgment, and his power, and we are to have faith in God, his salvation, and his victory. Look in in verse 9. So we're back to chapter 2 here. Back to chapter 2. Look in verse 9. In verse 9, you're going to find, oh, I'm in chapter 4. In verse 9, you're going to find this phrase where Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, this is an ironic phrase because two other times before this, Rahab has claimed not to know something. First, she doesn't know the spies. Then in verse 5, she doesn't know where the spies went. So twice, Rahab has claimed not to know something. Then in verse 9, she makes this confession. And so what you see in Rahab's life is this transfer of, I'm not going to fear these people. I'm not going to fear these spies, but I am going to fear the Lord. Because when you get further in verse 9, we're going to look at all of verse 9 now. When you get further in verse 9, it says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Then look in verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Okay, really quick in verse 10, just point out something. Why does she mention these two events? What she is doing, and this helps you to kind of make sense of the whole story, make sense of the Old Testament. What she does, she mentions the first event that happens to the people when they come out of Egypt, and then she mentions what ultimately is the last work of God before they move into the promised land. So she has framed the entire story with these two events. I know that God brought us out of Egypt, 
and I know that he has defeated these last kings that we have faced, and now we're ready to go into the promised land. That's the, the case for the people. What Rahab is doing is she's, by, by mentioning those two events, she's saying, and we know everything that happened in the middle. I said a lot of words to get to that point. She takes two events, and by using those two events, she says, and we believe everything else about the God that you serve, everything else that he did in the middle. You go on to verse 11. Verse 11 says, and as soon as we heard it, this is Rahab talking, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She is making a confession here of God's lordship over all people and all places. She's saying, yes, we believe that he is the God of the Israelites, but we also believe that he is God, he is Lord over us. She is showing, now remember, you get a reference in the book of James in the New Testament where it says that even the demons believe in God and shudder. There's a type of fear of God that says, I know he's really powerful, but it stops there. It never goes to the point of worship. It never goes to the point of confessing that he is Lord over all things. And so what Rahab has done here, she's not just afraid, but she is worshipful. She is making a confession that he is king of kings and lord of lords. So she has this fear of God, but she also has faith. Look down in verse 18. You get down to verse 18, and it says, Behold, this is the men talking to Rahab at this point. Down in verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your, family, uh, all your family's household. These are going to be actions that Rahab is going to take to show her faith in the Lord, to show that she really believes that God brings salvation. Also, interesting word to bring up at this point. If you don't know this word, you can write it down and just use it as a reference, but it's the word allegory. A-L-L-E-G-O-R-Y. These verses, especially verse 18, gets pretty fun because over the course of Christian history, Christians have struggled to know what to do with Joshua chapter 2 verse 18 because it portrays a picture that can be connected to Jesus in the New Testament in some pretty powerful ways. What we don't want to do is to get into the habit of picking a random thing out of the Old Testament and then making a strange path to Jesus in the New Testament. We want to make these connections as Scripture allows these connections to be made. You say, what are you talking about, Owen? Well, notice that she, color, she, she hangs a scarlet cord, this red-colored cord. Red, blood of Jesus. Belief in the blood of Jesus, hanging a scarlet cord. So the scarlet cord in Joshua 2 represents the blood of Jesus from the New Testament. Maybe. I, you know, it's one of those things that you don't want to discount something like that, but you never get that connection explicitly laid out in Scripture. And so when we start to make these connections like that, we have to be very careful. Is it a powerful image? Yeah, absolutely. Is hanging the scarlet cord in the window an act of faith on Rahab's part? Absolutely true. Is the fact that it's red representative of the blood of Jesus? I don't know. That's where I'm... I, I, 
I, I want to be cautious at that point. We don't want to make Scripture say something that it doesn't say just in order to make our point stronger. That's not helpful. That's actually unhelpful in, in the long run. But, but there's something to be made there. There's another image in verse 18. Verse 18 says, um, You shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Two times in Scripture, you get references to gathering family together for the purpose of salvation. The first is the story of Noah. Those who are brought into the ark will experience salvation. It's an act of faith to come into the ark and say, God will save us. Also, the story of the Passover, that when you were gathered into the house and the blood was painted over the door, being inside that house was the way that you were going to experience salvation. It was an act of faith to say, I have to be in here in order to experience the salvation, experience God's mercy. Once again, does that relate to being part of the church? Does that relate to that salvation that happens in the New Testament? Yes, it does in a big picture tying the pieces across Scripture. Is it directly house in Joshua 2.18 matches church in the New Testament? Uh, once again, we've, we've got to be careful with that. So did Rahab display faith? Absolutely. How do we know? Because the New Testament tells us. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at these verses on the screen. Two other times in the New Testament, Rahab is mentioned. She's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in reference to that hall of faith that's there. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Here's an interesting connection to make. Uh, and I picked this up from a commentary I was reading this week, so don't think that I came out with this. Uh, I didn't come up with this. But two groups of people knocked on Rahab's door this particular day. The spies and the soldiers who were coming to look for the spies. Who did she let into her house? Not the soldiers, but she did let in the spies. And by letting them in, she was saying, I and putting in my lot with these guys. I believe that their God is supreme. I want my identity to be connected to them. She didn't let in the soldiers. She said, I'm keeping you outside. I'm not gonna allow you to influence. I'm going to welcome in. I'm gonna show hospitality. I'm gonna connect my life with these people who come from the one true God. You get to the book of James, James chapter two, and you get another reference to Rahab in, in the New Testament. James two, verse 18 is a general statement. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then verse 25 says, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? The focus on Rahab is that she had faith in God and it was shown by what she did. If Rahab had not put the scarlet cord in her window and she had not gathered the people in, would she have been saved? The implication is no, she wouldn't have. She could have said words, oh, I believe in God, but if her actions had not shown that, she would show she really didn't truly have faith in God. And so scripture is saying, you can say you have faith in God, and faith alone absolutely does save you, but a saving faith is going to show itself in how we live our lives and the things that we do. And so Rahab's story has shown our relationship with God is not just, hey God, I believe in you, and then I go on my life. It's about I believe in you, and I give everything to you. I'm going to live my life the way that you've called me to live it. 
Okay, so what do we know about God? He's unbelievably merciful. What do we know about us? We are desperately in need of his mercy. How do we respond to him? We fear him in worship, and we put our faith in him by giving our lives completely to him. So what do we do as a response? On your, on your notes, I've used kind of a three, three-part system there. There are different ways that you can answer this question as you do your own Bible reading, but, but I like the head, heart, hands. How does the Bible change the way I think? How does the Bible change the way I feel or my attitude? And how does the Bible change the way I act? That's just helpful for me. Use whatever you find to be particularly helpful there. So with my head, do I believe God is merciful, good, just, powerful, all these things that we've claimed about him? Do I really believe those things to be true? Or do I have an image of God in my head that just doesn't match what you find in Scripture? God, let me believe about you what you've shown to us through your word. So how do I understand God? Do I really believe he's merciful? Heart, does God's mercy drive my worship of him and my attitude toward myself and others? The church is a place of mercy. That song that we sang earlier together, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy on me, that is a phrasing, that is a statement that comes from the early church that's been used in Christian worship. If you grew up in a Catholic background or an Anglican background, maybe you went to Mass with family or you grew up in that, in that religious background, that Kyrie eleison, that, that Lord have mercy, would have been something you would have recited, you would have thought about. But do you realize what it means for God to have mercy? If you feel unworthy, if you say, I don't have my life together, this is the place you need to be. The church is a place of people gathered together because they are desperate for God's mercy. There is no room for pride. There is no room for saying, you know what, you can come here once you get your life together. You're not going to get your life together. Every one of us is dependent on God's mercy, and so mercy makes a way for us to gather and worship. People are given special gifts of mercy. Some people are more merciful than others. We realize that. But when you're gathered together with the people of God, you should be in a place of mercy, not a place of permissiveness. The gathered church is a place of deep, abiding, relational mercy. You should not fear, I can't come in there because I would be pushed aside because I don't have my life together. But what mercy doesn't allow for is come, live however you want, then go on with your life. Because mercy makes a way. Mercy forgives and grace gives. Mercy says, yes, we'll allow you to be a part of us because I couldn't be here were it not for God's mercy. But we're going to move ahead together worshiping the Lord. And then finally, the last part, we're going to wrap up with this. Mercy from God should make us merciful toward others. So how can I proclaim and display mercy, especially toward outsiders? Outsiders is, is tough language to use because we realize the society we live in is very, just very split on this idea. But when we talk about outsiders, we're talking about somebody who wouldn't normally find themselves within the church. Evangelism, telling somebody about Jesus is not saying, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'd really be glad to tell you about that. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the mercy of God. Look at these quotes that are up on the screen here. In summary, an open door to the usually unwelcomed demonstrates that God cares for outsiders, that he is truly an inclusive God. Our open door, speaking of us individually, of your home, of our church, 
Our open door to outsiders is nothing less than God's always open door to them. And look how this quote ends. Uh, Remember that the church is not an exclusive club of elites who preserve their own special status by keeping the Rahabs of this world out. Rather, over its doors hangs the welcoming words of Jesus, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. God, let that be true of our homes. Let that be true of Emmaus. Can we say in all honesty because of the work of God among us that this is a place that people would be welcome to? That we would never do anything to say, no, 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 you can't come because X. What are we doing to say, were it not for God's mercy, there's no way I could be here. I've experienced his mercy and I want you to experience the same thing. Here's how we're going to wrap up our our service this morning. We're going to stand here in just a moment. We're going to sing a song. While we sing the song, we're going to pass the offering plates. Your response to God's work in your life this morning while we sing might be that you turn in that guest card. That you say, you know what? It's been a long time since I've worshipped with the people of God. Or I know I need God's mercy in my life. I need the people to pray for me. You're going to have a chance during this song to put that card in the plate when it comes by. Also, we are going to have people available here in the front and on the landing area in the back to pray with you. I know we're not a church that oftentimes a lot of people get down and go for prayer, but on this subject of mercy, on the subject of outsiders and being a part of the people of God, this might be the morning that you say, you know what, I desperately need somebody to pray for me. Or I've had wrong ideas of God. I've never feared him. I've never put my faith in him, and I need to do that. You're going to have a chance to do that during this song. People here at the front, people in that landing area to pray for you. When this song is finished, uh, we'll be dismissed at that point, but we're going to pass those offering plates. We're going to pray together, and we're going to worship the Lord fully together during this final song. All right? Let's pray together, and then we're going to stand up and sing. God, thank you for a church that gathers together for worship around the word that you've given us. A story like Joshua 2, a story of Rahab. We want to make ourselves Joshua, but we're not Joshua in that story. We're Rahab. We recognize the desperate need for your mercy that every one of us comes here with this morning. God, may this never be a place. May Emmaus never be a place where somebody says, you know, I just can't get inside there. I just, I don't have it together enough. God, let us throw the doors open in a way that shows your mercy and your grace, your love and your forgiveness. God, let that be true of our own homes, how we live our lives. You have been merciful to us and we shall be merciful to others. God, let us stand and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, I pray during this time of music, during this time of offering, during this time of prayer, God, that you would bring healing and hope to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.